Welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. I'm Rory McKenzie, the neuroscience editor here at Technology Networks, and today I'm joined by my colleagues Tiffany Quinn and Laura Lansdowne. How are you both? Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah. Good, yeah, well, I usually call this our homemade podcast, but this episode is especially homemade as we're all currently working at our respective houses. Um, today's podcast will be reviewing some aspects of the coronavirus pandemic, both the progress of drugs to treat the disease and how the lockdowns affected the progress of clinical trials looking at those drugs. And uh, yeah, I think you guys have been doing a bit of research into to the kind of drugs that we've been looking at more generally with regards to the coronavirus treatment. I mean, Laura, what, what sort of drugs are, are researchers looking at right now? Um, there's such a vast array of different drugs that everyone's kind of looking at. I think everyone's kind of getting stuck in and trying to do their bit. Obviously the, the ultimate, the ultimate kind of prize would be a vaccine. Um, but at the moment, whilst, you know, vaccine development is underway and they're trying to explore different vaccines, and there is a lot of interest in developing drugs or trying to repurpose existing drugs um, to kind of alleviate some of the symptoms that are related to COVID-19, specifically like respiratory symptoms. That's kind of a big area. So I guess, yeah. So I know, Tiff, we, um, we spoke to someone recently in, a, in an interview about like the drug development process in general and, you know, some of the the kind of the, not the issues but the challenges with drug development so I guess how long obviously the process is and um, how expensive it can be and just I guess the failure rate um, of those drugs that kind of are pushed through development so um, yeah there's a big um, drive to to repurpose existing drugs because there are benefits there. Mm, I definitely think um, I guess like you say you touched on the point that obviously the process from that can just hit so many challenges so obviously I know you'll be able to go into more detail if necessary than me but obviously you have your own limitations in like the preclinical stage um, and then as you move to critical um, or clinical sorry phases like the whole actual process can take anywhere between like a few years couldn't it all the way up to 10 and obviously we haven't got time on our side because this whole situation moves and changes so quickly so I think that's another reason why looking at drugs that may be um, I guess if we're repurposing drugs um, we have that safety data as well don't we so that's like another advantage yeah, um, yeah. of kind of so all this work's been done albeit for something different but we obviously know that there's some some similarities I guess between SARS and um, like previous versions of SARS and this obviously new version so I guess that's why like some people have been looking at things like treatments for influenza and things like that haven't they? Mm -hmm. Definitely I think I guess some of the benefits so when you're when you're looking at repurposing drugs I think there's like two angles there's off-label which is when a drug's already approved so it's gone all the way through the clinical development process come out the other side been approved by a regulatory authority and then you're looking at that drug that's been approved for a different condition or, um, or in a different patient population or a different dose and applying it to COVID-19 in this case. Or there's obviously the other situation where you're looking at drugs that are, half, are partway through that development process. So you have some, like you said, you already have some limited data on efficacy and safety in conditions 
that may be similar to COVID-19 or have um, symptoms that are similar to COVID-19 and you can, I guess, divert that development towards COVID-19 instead of those initial indications that you were previously investigating it for. So there are definitely benefits there. And also, I guess, um, with those that have already been approved, there's already manufacturing processes in place. So mm -hmm. if, if those drugs do seem to be effective against COVID-19, then you kind of already set up with regards to being able to supply those patients more quickly than if you're looking at something that's still right at the start of that, that development process where you're synthesizing that compound in really small amounts to make enough to obviously test in animals or in vitro models and then test in patients um, in, the, in the earlier phases where you're only testing a few, I don't know, a few, like 10 to 100 patients to start with. So there's definitely benefits there for repurposing, which is why everyone's focusing on it so much. Absolutely. I think, Laura, I know you've done quite a few interviews with researchers working on, on drugs and, and, and various trials. Speaking to them, have, have you gotten the feeling that the, the regulatory hurdles that used to make it take five, 10 years, have they just been kind of chucked out the window or are there other innovations that are being made to trials in this particular crisis that means we're looking at a vaccine in maybe, what, a year, 18 months, as opposed to five, 10 years, as might be expected otherwise? I think there are ways to fast track the development of compounds. So um, I think in situations like with, obviously we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic, so the regulatory authorities are willing to adapt and apply fast track situations to clinical development if, if the data is there. So I think, I know Molly, uh, our colleague, could probably go into more detail about the, I guess the vaccine side of things, but from a drug perspective, those kind of channels are already set up for orphan um, conditions. So I guess conditions that um, affect patients in potentially small numbers, but they're quite se severe conditions. So there's, there's channels that could be applied to COVID to kind of fast track everything. Um, and I know that obviously the FDA, EMA, which is the European Medicines Agency, FDA is obviously the Food and Drug Administration and the MHRA, which is um, the Medicines and Healthcare Products uh, Regulatory Agency. They have all issued guidance for carrying out trials during the pandemic to, to guide obviously the investigators and the physicians and, um, you know, the, um, the sponsors that are setting up these trials to help them, I guess, optimise the way they're, they're performing them. And would I be right in saying that you could probably, like, whilst you obviously can't skip steps, but surely it, are there parts of the process that you can, like, almost stagger or not stagger, but almost do in parallel, I guess, to speed stuff up? I'm trying to, I'm struggling to think of an example, but I guess, like, if you were to you know start the whole manufacturing process while you're doing like engineering runs or I don't know you're still in development but you're like condensing timelines by like doing whatever you can to kind of do everything together is that like a is that possible can people do that I would say yes I know for vaccine development if there there's um, a vaccine development program going on at the moment using um, tobacco plants um, and they've actually set up kind of a manufacturing facility in parallel and are also investigating um, whether this is kind of something that can be explored for COVID-19 
in parallel. So they're kind of keeping that, that manufacturing facility in mind whilst they're investigating the development of this vaccine. So they're certainly keeping tabs on different things and, and like you said, trying to find ways to speed up the process. And I think obviously with repurposing drugs, if we go back to the drug side of things, I think obviously at each phase of development, you'll have a primary endpoint for, for that phase of the trial in clinical development. So you'll have a specific aim or objective for that, for that step. And I think where repurposing drugs, you know, that concept really helps is that because you have data already about some of these drugs in different indications that um, have already been tested, you can kind of tweak your objectives because you already have a bit of a background information on that. So you can kind of streamline your obje objectives at each phase to kind of speed things along or, or make things more specific. That makes sense, yeah. yeah. Laura, in your reading around the different trials being used and, and uh, the different drugs being used, Obviously, we have the the really sizable trials like recovery here in the UK and the WHO solidarity trial, which are massive efforts of thousands of patients across all different continents, etc. Uh, but there's there's a lot of smaller ones going around as well. And as you say, there's just so many drugs being tested. Have you seen a, a reliance on the gold standard randomized clinical trial approach, or are there a lot of data being produced that are maybe based on sort of lower quality studies that, that shouldn't be? Um, to be honest, quite a lot of the research I've been doing and like the interviews I've been conducting have been with um, researchers that are kind of still in the discovery phase. So they've identified some compounds that maybe have gone through clinical development for other conditions that they think could be applied to COVID, but obviously before you start those clinical trials, you need to screen those compounds to see how feasible it is. So they're looking in vitro, they're looking, you know, the high throughput screening, um, just and, and strategies like that to try and determine whether it is, you know, something that can be taken forward. I think in the general, the landscape of research, I think reporting has changed significantly. I think um, there was, I can't remember what it was. Uh, I read, bear with me, I've got the resource here. Um, so a report from Digital Science actually came out today, um, states that actually preprints, so preprint is like a full draft of a manuscript that's shared publicly before it's been peer reviewed. So typically it's peer reviewed, you, you do your research, you write it up, it's peer reviewed and then published in, in a journal. But obviously because of the speed at which we want to do everything. Um, the amount of preprint prints um, accounts for about a quarter of COVID research at the moment, according to digital science. So I think the way people are approaching data and sharing data has changed significantly. And I guess there are pros and cons to that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, um, I think the preprints can be really useful and that process of making everything open and and shareable is something that uh, biomedical sciences have maybe lagged a bit behind some other sciences. I mean, um, in, in computational work, for example, anything with informatics, it seems really common to have your data just open and available on GitHub or one of these other servers that, that means other people can, can investigate it. But for a long time, it's been, been much harder to access the data. But preprints 
solve that problem in one sense, but as you say, they, they generate this other problem. And from what I can see, it, it that is related to our ability to trust studies that come out. And as you say, things are moving so fast when they come out, big decisions are being made based on those studies. Have there been any particular preprints you've identified that are that fall into that category of maybe causing more trouble than, than giving benefits? Um, not specifically, like I haven't really investigated specifically, but I know obviously with preprints, like you said, it's good to share data. I know that I guess the biomedical field are behind, like you said, and that's probably because of the competitive nature of pharmaceutical companies and how they want to get there first and they want to be the one that, you know, everyone's kind of looking at the same indications in some fields. And um, so, yeah, but I, I don't know, have you come across any preprints that have caused issues? Well, the one I was going to mention, another story that um, has literally just been in the, the news over the last couple of days um, is actually related to a, a published study, but I think the the problems it raises are the same. This is um, the kind of roller coaster ride that is the testing of hydroxychloroquine, uh, the anti-malarial drug that has been touted as a possible way of uh, reducing mortality for people suffering from COVID-19. It's, it's a really interesting story. Um, this is again a classic drug that's been repurposed, right? We know for a, a suspect the the science behind why it exactly works is unclear but it's been used as an anti-malarial drug for quite some time and it was suggested uh, a few months back um, in the crisis that it would be something that might be able to help treat um, COVID-19 patients and uh, whilst the WHO has been testing hydroxychloroquine alongside various other potential therapies in its solidarity trial for a couple of months now. I think that started back in the middle of March. Um, everything got really politicized when uh, President Trump over in the, the US announced that he was taking it as a prophylactic treatment to to stop himself getting COVID-19. I think I can speak for all of the team at Technology Networks and we say you probably shouldn't uh, take unapproved drugs that haven't been through all the clinical trials um, and uh, maybe especially not if you're president of the United States, but that's by the by. Uh, I think that uh, there have been competing evidence about hydroxychloroquine's efficacy. And, and most recently, um, two weeks ago, there was a lot of media fanfare because a study published in The Lancet, which is a, a pretty high-ranking medical journal, suggested that not only was hydroxychloroquine not effective at treating COVID-19, it was also linked to actually reduced survival and a higher risk of heart-related side effects. And I think that's what you were saying earlier, Laura, is that the advantage of these drugs should be that we have that safety data, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we have kind of, not a full understanding, but we have an idea of the safety issues that could come up or, you know, just the underlying issues that we might be presented with. But of yeah, course, I think uh, the issue there, sorry to interrupt, is like exactly what you say about how it's obviously you can't be opposed to the investigations, but it's almost like it we can't expect to kind of work them into the clinical process and the algorithms already without that data, like without that safety data, I guess, isn't it really? Yeah, I think it I think it throws up the the, the difficult problem that when you're repurposing these drugs, you might be using them for a totally different subset of 
of, of patients and obviously the one people who are getting most severely ill by and large from COVID-19 are elderly people. And although I don't know myself, perhaps it would be that hydroxychloroquine was previously used on, on different subsets of patients. So it's, it's really mm. important that these kind of safety studies are conducted, but the, the Lancet study came under some pretty heavy fire uh, after it was published two weeks ago because it was such a high ranking journal and because the data set involved ostensibly was so huge it involved over 95,000 patients it was given a lot of credence by international organizations and the world health organization actually stopped the arm of their solidarity trial that involved hydroxychloroquine in response to these findings and and said we need to go and explore whether or not it's actually meeting that first hurdle of safety before we can see whether or not it's being effective so the, the criticism that's come in though afterwards has been yeah pretty wide-ranging uh it seems that the study authors who are, include uh, researchers at University um, Hospital Zurich and at the University of Utah relied on one single author's uh, data. And this chap is CEO and, and co-founder of Illinois-based analytics company Surgisphere, um, Sapan Desai, and, and his data as I said earlier, involves this huge data set of patients across 671 hospitals. But quite early on, I think after it was published, data scientists began to notice that, for example, as a, as a pretty obvious data error, that the number of patients listed as having died in Australia in the Surgisphere data set was higher than the Australian government had registered over that same period of time. They were manufacturing deaths out of nowhere. They said in response to this, that, oh, sorry, we included a, an Asian hospital in our Australian data, and that, that's why there was a problem there. But then as soon as that mole was whacked, other ones began to pop up. You had uh, data from Africa, which suggested that one third of the patients in Surgisphere's trial data, uh, one third of the patients overall who had died in Africa were not only in Surgisphere hospitals, but they were in hospitals with sophisticated electronic health record systems and various other monitoring systems that commentators and, and other scientists were saying it's just not possible that all this, all these deaths would be located in these specific hospitals with this specific equipment that would be acquired to make it into the data set. So the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine, which published a similar study from the same data set, have now issued notices of concern, which suggest that this this research might be kind of blanked out of the the scientific record quite soon but you know in, in some ways the damage has been done right because we've now seen um, the solidarity trial pause for two weeks and, and no more patients were recruited for the hydroxychloroquine arm it's now been restarted uh, after these concerns have come to light although the who say it's because they were doing their own analysis but it seems unlikely that this wouldn't have uh, this wouldn't have contributed to their their doubt over the new data but you know, I think if this is in a published journal, one of the highest ranking published medical journals, um, you know, it, it really raises concerns over how much credence is being given to preprints that aren't even peer reviewed, let alone uh, these published articles, right? Absolutely. I guess, yeah, just just a warning, I guess, a bit, take caution when you're reading these. Obviously, everyone's trying to get this information out as quickly as possible, but there is that that side of things that maybe things aren't quite right and I, they can have a, a significant impact on on progress. For example, like you said, that trial recruitment was halted for two weeks. So 
is important. And I, I wanted just to touch on something you mentioned um, a couple of minutes ago about um, obviously repurposing drugs is great, but you know that the at-risk category is el one of those at-risk categories is elderly, and typically clinical trials there is a cutoff point age-wise, which is around sixty-five years old. So I think you have to bear that in mind as well. Obviously, with these COVID-19 trials, I'm sure that they're trying to incorporate participants within that within that bracket. But if you're looking at data we've gathered previously, it might not have accounted for that age group. So there are things there that you need to, you know, I guess, have flags and keep keep tabs on because you might not, it might not behave in that population as it does in a, in a younger population. That's a really good point. I think um, it's uh, really important that listeners who aren't familiar with clinical trials, which I'm sure could be most of them, uh, be aware that there's lots of different types of clinical trials and that the term you might see banded about a lot in the media right now is the gold standard and the the gold standard for these kind of clinical trials are randomized controlled trials which involve strict blinding and other procedures that mean that patients don't know what treatment they're getting and the physicians that are giving them those treatments don't know which ones they're getting and these are the trials that take the longest but are the best and mm -hmm. One quote that I, I noted in my reporting for the hydroxychloroquine story was from Martin Landry, who's a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Oxford. And he pointed out that even with perfect data and thorough reproducible analyses, the kind of observational studies like the one published in The Lancet are, as he said, wholly inadequate for making important decisions about the benefits and harms of possible treatments for COVID-19. So I think because there's been this breakneck pace in media coverage and in scientific research that we've not seen before, and as you said earlier, Laura, the progress of preprints, you know, 25% of published research has, has not even gone through this peer review process. Things are going so quickly, but mm -hmm. it's, it's these, these gold standard ones we really need to wait for, which might take you know, even months just for something that's not a vaccine, that's something that's a, that's a repurposed drug, might take months to get the data from. But I guess the message is to stay patient, right? The data will yeah. come and it will be good data, yeah. but it will just take time. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think, oh, oh, carry on, go on. No, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to kind of take a slight tangent, but I was just going to, obviously, in the, in the context of clinical trials, there's so much focus on COVID-19 clinical trials at the moment, but obviously before COVID-19 became a pandemic, became an issue, obviously there were, there were numerous other clinical trials globally that were already in progress, they were already recruiting for different conditions, so obviously I know there's an exceptional amount of focus on COVID-19 trials, but we also need to take into consideration those participants and patients that are kind of halfway through other studies and the impact this has had on their, the, the clinical development in other areas as well, because I think the, you know, the line, the, the spotlight is on COVID-19, but there, there's so much more clinical development happening in the background. And there's a lot of adjustments and changes that have needed to be made to different trials and um, to consider as well. Absolutely. Um, I was speaking with a, a researcher whose who's, um, vaccine research had been luckily conducted partly in New Zealand as opposed to 
uh, Europe or, or the US, and that was enabling it at the time I spoke to him a couple of months ago to, to continue with his the progress. Whereas, yeah, in, in states or in most European countries, this kind of clinical trial research will have been shut down entirely for an extended period of time. So it is absolutely mm-hmm. a, a, a huge impact on, on patients in the same way that people receiving that routine healthcare, having that stopped is, is just as dramatic and, and damaging to to their mental health. So it's, it's these kind of things yeah. that need to be focused on as we start restarting the, the healthcare system, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think, although they're obviously, I guess you could see it as a negative impact for these existing clinical trials, I think with all these different things that we've had to consider, like social distancing, you know, looking at patient risk, like going to the hospital, access to medications, I think it's helping drive forward different options and different strategies for clinical trials so speaking to a few people within the clinical trial kind of situation and um kind of in within cancer care telemedicine has been a big thing that's helped so having that ability to communicate with patients to you know to to monitor remotely conditions and i think we'll see i guess that will drive advances in that that area so you know we kind of, I guess we're coming up with solutions as we face things, but it is making us more innovative in ways. Yeah, I think that studies like the the Lancet one, which are, are disproved when there's so much focus on science, people might think that this, you know, would, would erode trust or, or be a, a, a huge negative. And, and whilst I think there has to be a, a big focus for, editors at journals to make sure that these kind of data errors are are snuffed out before they get published and i think there probably will be a, a reckoning for these these journals to have to look at themselves in their peer review process and, and make sure they haven't been lacking in certain areas during the crisis i think nonetheless the, the fact that you know it wasn't a case that the hydroxychloroquine trials were, were cancelled they were paused and the data was looked at again and after the data has been looked at, they've been restarted. It's a process which is part of the scientific method of, of looking at the available data and making decisions based on it. And that data is changing so fast that there will be studies like the hydroxychloroquine one, which go down, uh, go down the wrong alleys. But science is a process of investigation, right? And, and because we're using these new techniques, like you say, Laura, telemedicine, for example, and and uh, more remote medicine these these processes are are so innovative that that science will keep going back even when uh you know it suffers setbacks and and trials are find find it harder to to keep working so i have a lot of faith that that we will get there it just might take a bit of time yeah absolutely fab well i think we're coming to the end of our time for this podcast i don't know if you wanted to add anything on tiff um, I think you guys have touched everything. I mean, I pretty much had the same uh, kind of points, really, as as Laura raised. Um, and obviously, it's her area of expertise, so she's gone into more detail than I could have provided myself. Um, but yeah, I think I think the biggest thing as well. I think I'm very interested to see how, um, you know, I, I want to see how what's going to happen after. You know, I think there's a lot of uncertainty as to like our ability to rebuild after this situation as well because obviously with a halt in so much funding and 
you know lots of people have lost their jobs and I think that's halted progress like Laura has said in across the board in all sorts of areas of clinical research so I think it's it's also going to be quite a difficult time to kind of come back from that perhaps I don't know it's something I'm not sure if anyone's looked into or has an idea about yeah. that I think that's definitely a, con a concern I guess because like we say there's it's good to be innovative and it's it's pushed us to look at things maybe that were on the horizon but we weren't really thinking about right now like diff you know technological advances and I don't know like we say remote medicine but then it's also like when stuff starts to turn back to normal if if that's ever going to happen um yeah what, what do <laughs> what, what do we do <laughs> no I, I i think it's a good point i'd i'd like to see some of the innovations and changes that are implemented during times of crises you know when it's real pedal to the metal time mm. um i'd like to see them conserved afterwards you know the the fact that we can produce a vaccine for something that is admittedly pressing for everyone, uh, but we can do it in such a short period of time when we really, uh, you know, put our effort to it suggests that for so many other conditions where vaccines are available, but there's just not the, the impetus to get them through the right testing and, and the right trials to, to get them working uh, with patients. Um, I'm hoping that that kind of spirit and, and the realizing realization that, certain aspects of red tape have been slowing down trials unnecessarily will be will be continued so we can keep getting medicines to the people that need them yeah absolutely yeah fab well thank you both for joining me for today's opinionated science um we'll be back next time and we'll have more weird and wonderful research to share with everyone so thanks for listening uh, please wherever you're listening from give us a subscribe give us a review and please don't keep your opinions to yourself bye for now